Welcome to Emergo Radio, a place where a brain-first lifestyle matters, a place of impact and inspiration, a place where your hosts, Dave Kenny and Susan Kenny, coach you to rise above. Hi, friends. This is Dave again, and today we're on our second part of our two-part series with Jennifer Kalari of Connected Parenting. And Jennifer and I will continue to explore and dive deep into parenting and helping you learn some new skills to help your children of any age. And Jennifer and I have had a great, robust part one, and here today is part two. There are consequences to every action or non-action, and some are good. If I go yeah. to the gym five days a week, there's a good consequence. If I yes. eat ice cream five days a week, there's not so that, good a consequence. That's right. Absolutely. Well, at sometimes a really big, terrible consequence, like your child getting in big trouble when they're 13 and getting arrested, is not that I'm saying you should go around arresting your kids, but it can seem so devastating and so awful, but a much better lesson to learn at 13 than 21, right? Or being suspended from school, school versus, exactly. chal- versus challenging the school, helping your child uh, assume accountability, or mm-hmm. uh, there's a great book out uh, on extreme ownership and, yes. and, and helping people understand that that is a natural part of our world. If I don't show it, up at work, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. lose my job and get fired. Well, where does that knowledge begin? It begins down in the, in the younger years. Yes, absolutely. And, and so there's a bunch of, wanna, a lot of things I want to unpack here. First of all, I want to just send out such a message of love to moms because and I am one and I, I fall into that traps too sometimes with my kids. And there it's been, it's that type of parenting is done with such love because parents think we're doing the right thing when we do that. And, and, and to a degree, uh, partly that has to be there. It just, you have to have the other stuff as well. But what happens when you overparent and you rescue all the time and you solve every problem, I, I, I have an example I always use with a little girl having ice cream. So let's say you've got a 10 year old girl you have called the teacher every time, you know, something went wrong. They've been invited, weren't invited to a party and you got on the phone and you called the parents and you had their own party and they got trophies for showing up and all kinds of stuff. And you haven't let them have any adversity and they're eating an ice cream cone and the ice cream falls out onto the floor and the child starts screaming and yelling. And as a parent, we're like, what's the matter with you? It's an ice cream. Like, don't, you don't have to get so upset, but here's the problem. That actually is the worst thing that's ever happened in that child's entire life. So she is absolutely feeling devastated because she has nothing else to compare it to. This is why setting limits and healthy adversity is essential to good mental health. This is why we are seeing a generation of children who are suffering. I mean, suffering. I agree. um, In horrible ways. And we stand back and go, what are you talking about? You've got a nice house. We've given you everything. You've been tutored. You've been helped. You know, why are you such a mess? And then we feel horrible as parents. Where did we go wrong? This And this is not just each parent. This is a collective. We've all sort of made this overcorrection, I guess, from per- perhaps the kind of older type of parenting, which is, oh, you're fine. Suck it up. You'll be fine. <laughs> right? Like we all have sort of terrible memories of teachers, you know, yelling at us for things and, you know, getting the strap and everything else at school. And, and so there's been this correction, but it's been such an overcorrection um, that we've now got a generation of kids who are suffering deeply over things that you know they should be able to manage and it's a it's a mess it it really is there are lots of things that we can do about it and i want parents to know if you've been if you've ended up in this situation you are so not alone you were absolutely not alone it's so interesting i i went to china 2 years ago 
I think it was two years ago, I, I was asked by the Chinese Psychological Association to come and teach Chinese psychotherapists how to use uh, connected parenting and use the calm technique. And, you know, as I was heading over and really excited about this opportunity. It was really, it was quite an amazing experience, actually, and I'll probably draw on that again. But what was happening with, and what is happening in China with Chinese parents who are very more traditional in terms of hierarchy and listening to your elders and not talking back. And, and what's happening is Chinese kids have access to Western media now. They're playing video games. They're watching movies. They're watching television shows. They have, they're now being exposed to all kinds of ideas and they are basically saying to their parents, no, <laughs> I'm not going to bed. I'm not put, turning my video game off. And it's devastating because, I mean, parents don't know what to do, first of all. Um, and it's, so it's, it is literally sweeping the world. And it was an amazing experience teaching um, the technique over there. And it was quite lovely. Interestingly, because it's a nonverbal technique, which we'll come back to, um, when I was, and we can actually do this in a moment, we did a lot of role playing. So I actually showed, which I want to do with you also, how the calm technique actually works. And at one point, it was too hard to do it with the translators because they had to translate what I said and then translate what the other person said as we were role playing. <laughs> and we basically just dropped the translator. So I spoke in English. The person who was pretending to be the teenager who wouldn't get out of bed spoke in Mandarin. And it made no difference because it's a nonverbal technique. The feeling was the same. That's brilliant. The magic still happened. Yep. That's brilliant. And one of the things we run into too over and over about boundaries and with parents is are they but are they going to be happy? And a, and a parent focuses on that. And, and I love Brene Brown's take on all oh, of this. I love her. I, lo I love her teachings and, and her, you know, kind of, I'll, I'll synthesize it down to what's okay and what's not okay. Mm -hmm. And when you begin as a parent, even to define that in, a, in your parenting role and relationship with your children is what's okay, what's not okay. What's okay is you, you know, we, you ask for the car, you get the car and, you know, 10 o'clock and you come back just around 10 o'clock. That's okay. And what's not okay is you ask for the car and all that and you come back at three o'clock and, and okay. the boundaries around that. And it, and it removes a lot of that emotion because that conversation mm -hmm. or at least the definition within the, here's the other thing within the two parents, I, I find that the parents overcompensate for each other. Yes. Um, and, and so, um, Talk about this. I've introduced a few things, you know, the parents who think, you know, when we talk about gaming, maybe, you know, here's some strategies. Oh my God. Well, are they going to be happy? What do you, what yeah. are your thoughts about parents? Well, yeah. focus? I love your parent, by the way, your phrase hyper parenting. Yes. So I yes. love that phrase. So yeah. how does that apply yeah. to here? So it's, it's so interesting because that's often as we become, and this is why it's often moms. It's not always the moms. It's sometimes it's the dads. But as moms, we are so empathically charged, so tuned into our child's emotions that we feel sad when they feel sad. We feel everything that they're feeling. And sometimes we feel it just as intensely, sometimes more. So there's a few things I want to unpack here. And one of the things, if we're being really honest with ourselves, is sometimes we want our kids to behave so we can feel better, so we can get to sleep, so we can stop worrying. But, but if, they're, right? if they're happy, then I'm happy. That's how the, how, it, <laughs> right. It's, yeah, it's it, so it's, connected. It's so connected, right? So, so the, and I love the, it's okay, what's okay and what's not okay. And what I do a lot of, and, and again, there's, there's layers to this. There's things that parents have to work through before they can get here. But one of the things I have parents doing all the time is, getting their child to also tune in to what's okay, what's not okay. So how does that, like, does that really feel okay to you? Like, and I don't mean it in a guilty way. I mean, what happens with, you know, anger, depression, frustration, 
uh, jealous, all of those emotions are just fear. Like we only have two emotions, love and fear. Right? Love, we can feel it. There's alignment. That's the brain coherence. We all know what love feels like, but anger and jealousy and bitterness and yelling and threatening and uh, gossip, all of that, that's all fear. That's all fear. That's all ego. That's all fear. So very often, especially older kids, but even younger kids, they know it's not okay to bring the car back at three when you've told them to have, have it, had it back at 12. They know that. And it, because they feel so awful, because there's such a gap between what they know they should be doing and what they actually did, that feeling, uh, which is often this kind of awful feeling in your stomach, becomes intolerable. And the only way to discharge that is to discharge it at their parents. You're mean. That's a stupid rule. You're the only person who cares about that. What's the matter with you? You don't love me or any plethora of things that get thrown back at you. And so one of the really important things as you build through and you, you kind of rebuild some of these um, bonds. And it's not that parents don't love their kids. Of course they do. But the bond takes such a beating. It gets threadbare by all of the fighting and the screaming and the disappointment. But getting your child to tune into, you know, saying things like, look, I've seen you with your grandfather. You're so awesome. And you're so good with young kids. And I see you with your little cousins. And you have this amazing sense of who you are. So I know that deep down that can't feel right to you to bring the car back at three when we said 12. What's that about? getting them to tune into their own GPS system, right? And, and instead of fearing their emotions, but using them as emotional indicators, as ways that help them make better choices and feel better about themselves. You know, anxiety is a perfect example and we'll get to procrastination, but you know, young people who procrastinate and then they feel horrible about themselves, right? They go into kind of a self-loathing phase. The only thing that is going to make them feel better is doing the stuff they're procrastinating about. That feeling doesn't come from doing the thing. It comes from not doing the thing, right? So the more kids oppose their parents and get into these fights and feel so alone and isolated and bitter and angry, the more those feelings are going to build up their body and the more they're going to have to use something else like a drug or drinking or whatever it is to soothe that feeling, to shut that off. Or, and then it's or, a, it's or a, anger or anger and rage. Of course, absolutely. Or, game, or gaming and disappearing or, or, or social media. Or even just fighting with your parents. Right. And, even and that becomes an addiction. What what you've talked you've touched on my world of neurology here, mm -hmm. and that is the neural pathways. And the mm -hmm. more we don't do something in procrastination, the stronger those neural pathways become. The more we then step into doing it, mm -hmm. actually, the weaker that you, you, I think you actually use the, the phrase of, tr of pruning a tree. Yes. But, the, the, but those become a, a weaker and actually disengage and the new pattern becomes the strong. So it's, it's like I call it walking down a, a path on a dirt road yep. or out in, the, out in the woods. And the more you walk down that path, which is more you take the action, the stronger it becomes. So the anxiousness, anxiety, and all the other uh, subcategories below that are disappear when we start to take the action. And you're right. It is the only solution. It is. Procrastination. It is. It is. And, and any, any kind of um, thinking patterns that we get into. So, you know, I, that's what's so wonderful about all of this. And it's making its way into mental health is that these are programs, which means you can just run a new program. You know, it's difficult <laughs> to uninstall a program, but you can stop running it. Right? You can you can put new hardware and software in, and, and it, then suddenly you're um, you have some power. Suddenly you're the architect of your brain instead of the victim of it. 
Um, and that's a really important thing. And we'll sort of get to how that um, can be introduced in terms of parenting. But I want young people to know that, that they don't have to be a slave to their anxiety, that it's not easy. Now, anxiety is a bit of a beast, right? Anxiety is a monster. It likes to be fed. It is hungry. And, and every time you feed it by avoiding, every time you feed it by running away from something, not showing up, not handing that paper in, not showing up to work, not answering that phone call or that email, your anxiety goes, oh, phew. Well, this is great. I'm alive because I avoided that. Remember, anxiety is self-preservatory. It loves you. It doesn't hate you. It loves you. It's trying to save you. And the more you give into it, the better job it thinks it's doing. So it goes, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to widen the net. <laughs> I'm going to do this even more because this is the only reason I'm while I'm still here. And then really what you end up seeing, and this, this is the heartbreaking part for parents, is you see kids just literally paralyzed. They, you set them all up. You've got a job interview for them. You've helped them out with uncle so-and-so and and a day when they're not that anxious. Okay, I'm going to go. This is great. The morning of not going, not going, I'm not doing it. And you can beg and you can cry and you can threaten and you can bribe. And that kid's not getting out of that bed. Not when anxiety's at the helm. You brought me to a topic that you write about and talk about is from no to go. Mm Mm-hmm. And to raise motivation and 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 lower avoidant behavior, uh, lower anxiety and procrastination. It's a catchy phrase, but it's not just a catchy phrase. There's some meat here about you know helping people go from that no to engage in life to go. Absolutely, absolutely. So the first thing that people need to understand about procrastination is that it's a form of anxiety, right? The, the brain doesn't like to change states. If I'm okay and I'm comfortable, then I decrease my chances of anything bad happening to me. So I'm going to stay right here, right? So, and whether it's getting in and out of the shower or turning your game off or getting to work or any kind of transitions. And typically these kids that, that, that are, you know, that you would work with would probably have been kids when they were younger that had issues with transitions, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and that's sort of one of the kind of precursors of it. So what ends up happening is they keep avoiding. And so anxiety itself is what procrastination actually is. So I have this sneaky way because you got to outsmart anxiety. So let me give you a quick analogy. Anxiety is like a, like a big goofy guard dog. Okay. And it loves you. And at first it just barks at scary people outside and then you're still there. So now it barks at everybody and then you're still there. So then it barks at anyone that comes near you and then you're still there. So it goes, you know what? I'm just going to sit on your chest. I'm going to sit on your chest. I'm going to lick your whole face and you're going to be great and you'll be safe, but you don't have a life. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. No one can come near you. And that's sort of how I like people to think of anxiety. I don't want people to be scared of anxiety, which by the way, is not a bad thing. You need anxiety in order to function. You just don't need this much. Yeah, We teach that. Absolutely. So um, it's really about training your anxiety, right? So if we start this no to go around something that someone is chronically avoiding, that's that's really important, like school, for example, the anxiety is not going to let this happen. It's like, are you kidding me? You're not going to listen to that lady. Don't listen to her. Don't do those strategies. Are you nuts? The only reason you're here is because of me, right? So you'll get a lot of, I'm not going to my CBT appointment. I'm not going here because the anxiety itself is whispering in your ear. Don't get treatment. You're going to feel scared. And then you're going to have to do all these scary things, right? There's this, the idea that you'll actually feel like doing it is very foreign to an anxious brain. So what we do is we sneak around it. So it's, you know, and I set it up that a few times a day, you'll just do something so small that you would normally avoid. Like, let's say you're throwing a, I don't know, you're ripping up a piece of paper and you throw it in the garbage and it falls on the floor. So instead of going, ah, I'll do it later. You say three, two, one out loud so that you're overriding any thinking process. You count three, two, one, you get up and you put it in the garbage. 
And you do that with a toothpaste cap or your bathrobe that fell on the floor or your hoodie that, you know, fell off the hook. The, the smallest, smallest things you start to train your brain to do. And then I, I, I'm usually very big on doing, there's, there's a sort of a broad program here, but I really love to pick things that are very, very particular to each person going through this. And we'll design the program together. So what are you going to, so three things for three days, then four things for four days and five things for five days. And once you've been doing this for a little while, then we pick something bigger, maybe a backpack that needs to be undone or a drawer that needs to be cleaned. And then we get to the room and then we get to something else and then eventually get to school. And by the time you get to school, you have some hardware. Mm -hmm. It's not just like, like a will, you know, willpower is a finite thing and it runs out and you only have a little bit of it every day and it runs out. That's why people go to the gym for the first two weeks of January and then never go back, right? Because willpower is only part of it. Willpower plus neural pathways, now you have something going, right? So, and the part that I love about this is the absolute impossible procrastinators, like young people whose freight train has literally come to a stop can do this and feel good and, and all describe, I feel better. I feel some flow. I feel less anxiety. Like I feel different. And then you keep increasing it ever so slowly until you come back to the thing that you've actually been procrastinating the most, which for a lot of young people is school. Assignments are often the thing that really get kids completely frozen. Anything with a lot of steps. Yeah. But in in my age group that we work with, it's going to work or going to a job. Well, it turns into that, right? It's the same thing. And so we actually, we bookend our days here for our residential program and our, and our clients here. And we bookend the days with AM routine and PM routine. And one of the top things in AM routine is making our bed. bed. And then the other thing is clothes. Clothes belong in four places, on our body, in the hamper, folded neatly in the drawer, not just rammed in there because that's how I then take care of the chaos myself. So folded mm-hmm. neatly in the drawer or hung up. And when we do these things, these these little wins are monster wins. And most they people are. come into us, You're they building struggle. Pathways. Yeah. Well, not just yeah. neural pathways. Now when I leave the bathroom and I walk back in the bedroom, I can breathe. You know, my environment is <laughs> yeah, ready for me to so move true. forward into the next step versus it being just everything's yeah. unmade. So it is it is about reprogramming through yes. action and and yes. knowledge is important, but knowledge doesn't reprogram. You don't you don't no. reprogram a brain through knowledge, you re- reprogram a brain through doing. Doing, absolutely. And knowing and doing are different things. And and what I love about your what you're saying is they actually physically experience and have that moment of standing in that room where you can where everything's where it should be. And you just, you feel different. You Jennifer, really do. We, you got, we got nothing. And, and I mean yes. that here, but I mean that everywhere. There, we have nothing if we can't take care of those basics. And and we all know people and, and maybe at times of our lives where we're more worried about the outward and not the inward, it, it'll fall apart. It's a deck yeah. of cards. It's a house of cards. It so, is. Listen, yeah. you and I could talk. I, we got to do another show sometime soon because <laughs> we I, we've talked about so many other things. But there is one big one that we teach, especially with parenting, and and I use this with boundaries and things. But you talked about the two streams of feelings of fear mm-hmm. and love, mm-hmm. and I keep going to that place for to helping parents that if you're parenting out of fear, and so many parents are fearful of what Billy or Janie are going to think or feel. Oh my God. And, and versus a, a place out of love being their frontal lobe. I mean, we all know this when we go walking with the child across the street and we hold their hands, so they don't get hit by a bus. We don't care if they like it or not. 
We are their frontal lobe and safety because you don't get a do-over if they hit by a bus. You don't get a do-over. There's no, there's no second mm-hmm. chance here. Mm-hmm. And yet when we get, when they, they get older, the parents are more, more in a place, at least the parents that we work with, not all, um, are in a, this state of fear. Yes. And I, I don't know how you can parent there. So I, I really encourage and coach them for weeks to move into the state of love mm-hmm. and to help their child from there. What do you, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on those? Well, two my thoughts are, you know, I, I do the same thing when I work with families, like no matter what state that the child or the teen is in, we start with connection first. Yes. Little ways where we just, and sometimes it's really hard to use that calm technique when you're really upset and you're angry. So I teach parents, use it when you're not upset. When your kid says, Hey, where's the chocolate milk? Instead of saying, well, you drank it all. So where do you think it is? You say, you know what? I totally get that when you want something and you're like dying for it. And you open the fridge and it's not there. That sucks. And then walk away. Don't stand there waiting for like an accolade. Just sprinkle these little um, connections around, get out the baby books, you know, send some icons, really spend time there because it's just as good for your brain that's in a state of fear as your child's, right? And as you do that, you're sort of building up that emotional bank account. Um, because if you if you come in with the con- with the with the containment and the limit setting too fast when there's been too many issues between you and your child, and you're just mean, you're mean, they're angry, it's not going to work, they're going to you know, explode at you, you're going to explode at them, and it's just going to blow up. But when you start to build that connection, when that's the, the relationship is more there, um, and, which is literally all you have. Like when you send your teenager and they're going, they're going to a party, and you've yelled at them the whole way there, I don't, I don't want to get a call from somebody, and you better be safe about this, and I and you better be home on time, and, blah, blah, blah. and they walk in that party and someone goes, hey, you want to try this? What do you think they're going to say? Yeah, give it to me. Piss off at my mom, right? But if you're on that drive and you're having a gentle conversation or you're reminding them of how good they are, or you're telling them funny stories about when they were little, or, and you've been doing this for weeks before this too, by the way, when they go off to that party, you are still present in their heart. You go to that party in their heart. And so when somebody says, hey, do you want something? They might go, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. Or they fake it, or they just have a little instead of too much, right? So it's this, it's really this incredible um, connection that stays whether you're together or not. I'm going to just jump in. I mean, when I talk about love with parents, we have an acronym here. There's long-term ownership of values for everyone. And, and, and when you come, come from that place is that the, we all have values, we all have to own them um, and they're for everyone. And a parent creates that value system, you know, certainly when they're younger, but, but, but maintains that value system mm-hmm. um, in the in the home in the in the family unit, and it and these va- are values for everyone. Um, it really helps bring a foundation of love it and does. a parent from a foundation of love, yeah. and, and then you're and in the, And now our connection happens. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I I started working with street kids. That's when you when you asked me at the beginning, where did connected parenting come from? It came from. 30 years ago, working with street kids. So these were kids who were, you know, very aggressive, incredibly angry, pretty dangerous place to work. Um, You know, we were told to be like pretty tough on them and like, don't turn your back on them and, you know, just stick to the rules and, you know, don't engage. And these were kids who were 11 to 16 years old. I I could not do that. I really couldn't. So especially at bedtime. So it was time when they had to go to sleep and the makeup came off and the teddy bears came out and the jammies came on and they turned back into children. I could, I, I would sit on their beds and I'd rub their backs and I'd sing them lullabies and I'd tell them bedtime stories. And these, 
and they softened and they softened. Oh my gosh. The next day when I needed them to get the things that they, I needed them to do done, they did it. Why? Because we had a connection. That's why. So the connection creates that emotional safety so that you can give those loving limits in a place of love. When you're screaming or you're yelling or you're threatening or you're panicking when you're saying it, that energy is just being, you know, translated you know, through the field. And that child is all, all that young person is feeling is more anxiety, more fear, more attention, and they get overwhelmed and they shut down or they get angry to diffuse it. We have people who have been told they're failures by everybody. And yeah. one of the first things that we, that our whole team does is we carry this. And it really is, you know, in all of us is I believe and I believe in everybody that walks in the door of their greatness. They haven't found it. They're lost. We, we actually, it's funny you mentioned superheroes because we, we have nicknamed Emergo Recovery a superhero school. Love we're going to help you find your superpowers and we're going to focus the positive psychology. We're going to focus on yeah. your superpowers I and we're going to stop that. talking about shortcomings and, and yeah. let's create a life of purpose and passion around your superpowers. So, yes. Yes. Um, and, and, but it starts with a, a simple and a real statement and mirroring statement. Um, an yeah. intimate statement, if you if if you can, in a, you're still in a professional setting, but I believe, yeah, and and it yeah. takes a while for somebody to actually get it. They actually, it it, it's so yeah. strange to them. Yep, it it does, and it's interesting you say that that they've heard all the failures because all these kids too are are always repeating those in their heads. They're meaner to themselves in their own heads oh, than God, you could yes. possibly imagine. Yeah. So Jennifer. I'm sorry. We got to, we got to cut. I know this we literally just off. touched on things. <laughs> I, I know. So uh, let's talk about another show and have you back. Cause this, oh, I, I, love think, that. I think this is really rich and I really thank you for your time and your energy and your expertise oh, you. that you exude passion and purpose. Um, it's just an honor to collaborate with you today, but one thank thing, and you. I haven't given you a heads up on this, so I'll, I'll, I'll buy you 30 seconds as I introduce this, that we do Emergo is Latin and it means to emerge or to rise above. And at the end of every show, I asked the guest, and I got to jump in and participate too, about something that I commit to, maybe I've done today, maybe I will do today, but something I commit to in my life to help me emerge. So I'm going to ask you, what is it that you would commit to? Maybe you've done this, or maybe you will do this in your life Mm -hmm. to help you emerge or to rise above today. So I think for me, it's learning how to be pickier about what I'm thinking about. This has been my big big thing for a while now. And it's so hard because we have all these neural pathways that pull us back into ranting and complaining. And, oh, of course they didn't close the cupboard door. And of course they didn't put this in the laundry. Like, and you sort of think about the dialogue that's in your head all the time. So I'm really trying to like be nice to myself and let myself do that for a moment and then take my thoughts in another direction so that I'm, I'm living in a different space emotionally. On average, we have 80,000 thoughts a day. I do mm-hmm. believe women have more thoughts than men. <laughs> I think. And uh, uh, as Dr. Raymond teaches about ants and automatic negative thoughts yes. and to crush them and replace them with gratitude, that's beautiful. Uh, for me, uh, it was my moto hot yoga class that I went to today oh. during lunch. And I thought it was a regular moto hot yoga class. And I ended up finding out it was a moto flow class. And it wow. kicked my tail, but I loved it. <laughs> but, it, you know, and listeners will know this, that it's one of the things that I do for myself and my, my body, my spirit, my mind. So and important. So that's, that's what I've committed to today and have already done to help okay. myself uh, personally just rise above. So I today I've been joined with Jennifer Colary of Connected Parenting. Jennifer, how can people get a hold of you? So they can go to connectedparenting.com. 
there's tons of information on there about my books. There's information about how to reach one of our therapists. And there's also information about the online course that we offer to parents. Jennifer, it's been an absolute delight to uh, collaborate with you today. Thanks for coming on Amargo Radio. You're welcome. In gratitude, we thank you for joining us on Emergo Radio, a place where you rise above with your hosts, Dave Kenny and Susan Kenny. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and learn. Want more? You can reach us at emergoradio.com. That's E-M-E-R-G-O radio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.